you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter number 63. Isaiah chapter number 63. I did talk to you in a, in a post on our uh, church's Facebook po- uh, page about how that I want to continue with this theme on prayer. And uh, we are in an oblique way, but as I went through this week and with everything that has gone on, I want to speak to you and address some of, not, in, not directly, but some of the things that are going on in our country and as a nation. And so I want, and in, in the end, I will tie this together with the theme of prayer. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter number 63. And look at verses 1 through 6. A rather obscure section of Scripture, but I'll bring it into light as we go through it. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse number 1. The prophet here is writing and he is talking about what he is seeing. And we'll get into what all is happening in the background, in the context of of where he is in his life, in the, the life of Judah, the southern kingdom of of Israel, but Isaiah 63 and verse number 1, the prophet here asks a question. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I. Here's the person. He's he's asking this question and then there's a response as he asks the question. It is I. Speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So here's the prophet, he asks another question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? Here's the response. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life's blood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Now I'll bring this into light and and make application and make this more understandable as we go through the message, but I want to talk to you about a vision of hope. A vision of hope. You know, it's been said that the human body can live approximately three weeks without food, approximately three days without water, and about three minutes without air. But others have said that the human heart cannot live around one second without hope. Hope. For us as a people in in life in general, hope is essential to have hope for the future. When one looks at the landscape of our modern world, hope is not something that is expected to to come into view. You know, it's hard to fathom really all that, that this world, our country, and the world in general has been through in the last, oh, uh, a little less than a year since this, everything that has taken place in the last year. Disease and sickness, social unrest, political turmoil, and economic 
uncertainty dominate, have dominated the horizon of all of our lives. And when it comes to the church, it has been also devastated by restriction and by resignation. Some of God's people have even turned away from the church as a whole. You know what it, uh, but, but even before the crisis, even before last year, I believe we all could honestly admit that the church's influence on society has been eroding for decades. Uh, such is the horizon. Uh, such a horizon is enough to cause those who pray and sought after God to see, to show Himself strong in their lifetime to become discouraged. Uh, to wonder, is there any hope for the gospel? Is there any hope for the message of Jesus Christ uh, not only in the world, but even in our communities, in our states, in our, our cities? Is there any hope against the enemies of the gospel? This could well be the sentiment that the prophet Isaiah is experiencing in our text. Although he had seen the greatness of King Uzziah with all of it, but with each passing king after Uzziah, uh, the ministry of Isaiah was a very long ministry, he lived late in his life. And, and, and with every successive king uh, of Judah, Judah the nation began to go deeper and deeper into sinfulness uh, that, like, uh, uh, that like of Israel in the north. I don't know if you know much about the history of where we are in the prophet Isaiah, but by the time we come to Isaiah, the people, the promised land that Israel had come into from Egypt's bondage had broken in half. Part of the northern kingdom was, uh, was Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. Well, the, in the northern kingdom, by the time we come to our text, had already been attacked and overrun by the Assyrians. They had turned away from God many years earlier than Judah had. But Judah was following in the same steps. It was going in the same direction by the time we get to Isaiah the prophet. And it wouldn't be long till Babylon, off in the horizon, would be used by God to chasten this rebellious people of Judah. And by the time we come to chapter number 63... This discouraged elderly prophet, he looks on that horizon, and in his heart, he he no no uh, in his heart he must have show, looked for only defeat and discouragement. But in doing so, he sees a strange sight. So get the picture: Isaiah is on a wall, and he's looking out on the horizon, and. And, and he set, like, we'll read about it later, but he set watchmen on the wall to look for either oncoming help or enemies that would attack Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And as he's looking out there, he saw a strange sight. A figure appears seemingly out of nowhere. And that's where we get this in verse 63 where he says, Who is this that comes out of Edom? He's looking off in the distance and this figure begins to emerge. But when he comes into full view, this vision brings just what he and the God-honoring remnant there in Judah needed to see. A vision of hope. Now I know this, I, as I have witnessed in my own heart, 
every one of us who loves God and His church needs to look closely at this same horizon. Because I believe in this view, in this vision that Isaiah sees of this figure coming out from the darkness of the horizon, I believe that there is hope not only for uh, uh, Isaiah in his day, but there is hope for us as well. I want us to look at this passage of Scripture and I want you to see three descriptions that I'm going to draw from it. There's three descriptions and then we'll, we'll be done. Number one, the first description is this. I want you to see a dark hour. A dark hour. Now it's important to place this text in chapter 63 in its context in the overall book following chapter number 62. If you'll go back, and I encourage you to go back home when you get home and look at chapter 62. But if you were to read 62, 62 is spoken in a voice somewhat like a sermon. The prophet is speaking to the people. And in 62, he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to lift them up and inspire them to give them encouragement in God. But in doing so, if you read closely chapter 62, you will find some clues as to the state of Judah at this time. You see... Uh, in during Isaiah in this in this message in 62 that Isaiah shares, we can see that the prosperity that came under King Uzziah's uh, leadership, you know, King Uzziah in the, way back in chapter number six in Isaiah, uh, the Isaiah the prophet, he he looks and he sees in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. So just by early chapter number 6, Uzziah had passed off the scene. And Uzziah had brought in a time of great prosperity and growth in Judah. He was a good king other than uh, some blemishes on his life. And we won't get into that. But uh, this man had prospered Judah. But with those, with those decades of prosperity, the people of God turned away from God. Isn't that always the case? When prosperity comes and comfort and protection come, we don't need God like we used to. And we tend to back off. We tend to cool in our pursuit and affection for God. And so this led to Judah being directly disobedient to God. God told them not to make alliances with Assyria and Egypt, and but they did exactly that. Uh, they, uh, they begin to bring in pagan practices into Judah and to permit this infiltration of, of sinful practices into the nation. And because of this, down through the decades, the blessing of God began to depart from Israel. We see it time and time again. You look at the book of Judges. Judges is like a roller coaster. And when God's people are at harmony with Him, when they're following Him, when they're crying out to Him, they're doing well. And then prosperity comes. And when prosperity comes, they take a nosedive into idolatry. They get away from God. And then they're, and then they're brought into captivity. And when they're brought into captivity, they cry to the Lord. He sends a deliverer. And it's just up and down and up and down. Well, Judah is following that same pathway. They're, 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 the God is taking away His blessing. Now in doing so, we read in verse number 1 in 62, if you still have your Bibles, Isaiah 62 verse number 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth 
as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Now this is a good encouragement. He says, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep preaching. I'm going to keep encouraging the people of God until they become a shining light, a burning torch. What was Israel? What were the people of God supposed to be to the world? A bright light. They were to be a light to the nations and they had stopped being so. And Isaiah's saying, hey, I'm going to keep going until you guys become a light. But when he says that, he lets us know that they were no longer a light. They were no longer a nation uh, that reflected the true God to the Gentile world. Rather than a light, God's people were being referred to as forsaken. Look in verse number 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. Here he's saying, he's saying there's hope for the future. There's hope for things coming out. But uh, he's saying that these things that are in the future, they won't be able, uh, they, you, won't be able, you won't be known as those things in the future. But the problem is, is that he's saying right now, you're known as forsaken. Right now, you're known as a desolation. The people of God are, are being termed as a people forsaken of God. A land of desolation. In verse number 8, look at verse number 8. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by His right arm, I will not, uh, I will not uh, again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine uh, for which you are labored. Again, Isaiah's trying to encourage them. He's trying to say, listen, this is not going to happen anymore, but what he does tell them is what is happening. The enemies of God are coming in and stealing their corn. The enemies of God are coming in and stealing their wine. They're taking what was rightfully supposed to belong to them and they're taking it away. Basically saying you're being run over by your enemies. You're being a laughing stock. You're being uh, cut away uh, from, from God's promises. And although the prophet is attempting to lift their spirits of the people, he, we see clearly how discouraging the times were. Uh, can't we make a comparison to our own day? Uh, on day where self-inflicted wounds of the church have relegated it to a place of irrelevance in society. You look upon all the scandals of the 80s and the 90s and all the ministries that have turned over, all of the scandals of, of, uh, of the Catholic church, which does, whether we like it or not, does reflect on our church. Although we are not the Catholic church, we are not part of that, it does reflect on Christ in general, but we see all of these things reflecting on us and it makes uh, the church a place of irrelevance. Is it any wonder that the world around us sees the church as non-essential? Haven't we seen that as of late? The church being termed as a non-essential entity. The church is just unseemingly, uh, is, is an unsightly wart from an ignorant past, a blemish on the face of the modern man that simply needs to be removed. The church is seen as an institution that is no longer having an impact. In 2016, Barna Research Group published an, uh, that the overwhelming majority of the largest generation of American history known as the Millennials have no religious affiliation. Think about that. The majority. We, we live among the 20-somethings, the 30-somethings of the Millennials and the majority of them have no religious affiliation. They are known as the nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E. They have no religion. They have no commitment uh, to, the, uh, to the gospel, to the uh, Jesus Christ. And so, here we, we've seen this also in 2019. These are pre-COVID 
pre-COVID statistics. I don't even want to know what the statistics were for this this past year. But in the Southern Baptist Convention shown that for the 12th year in a row, church attendance, church membership, conversions and baptisms were on the decline while church closures were on the increase. Think about that. For the last 12 years, there have been fewer church openings, fewer salvations, fewer memberships, fewer baptisms, and church closures just keep going up and up and up. The society under which we are charged to be salt and light is fast becoming a civilization where any residual thumbprint of God's hand upon its formation has practically been eroded away. I I do not believe in cultural Christianity. All right, let, let me just make that clear. There's no such thing as cultural Christianity. There is following Jesus Christ, being born again, and there is not. But used to, used to, when I was a kid and further back, used to, people, whether, whether they uh, were genuinely saved or not, people had a sense of decency that can be traced back to some sort of Christian influence from the past. We had a, a, at least a decorum, at least a, a, a society that would at least when it's outright and blatant sin would kind of hold it to the side, put it in the dark spots, not put a spotlight on it. But that is not the world we live in. I believe that that is the thumbprint of what God has done in this nation through its history. Now, uh, you can trace the history of Christianity. What do you believe in its foundings and how were they, were they genuine Christian were they, were they, or were they kind of atheists? What, what, that's a long story. Some were, some won't. But you cannot deny the fact that this country has had fingerprints of God's hand all over them. And where we have seen the church being, uh, being less of an influence, we have seen that thumbprint of God be, um, to be eroded completely away. You see, uh, Isaiah's vision came during not only a dark time from within. So here, this is self-inflicted. What we read of in chapter 62 is self-inflicted. God has taken their, His hand off of them because of their idolatry and, and the situation. But also, there is problems on the outside. You see, notice in 63, our text says that this is, comes from Edom. This person, this unknown person that comes on the horizon is coming from Edom. Edom is is in the south. I believe it's a nation located in the southeast of Jerusalem, uh, just below the Dead Sea. It's a, it's a separate kingdom from Israel. And as this kingdom is, its history, it comes from the descendants of Esau. How many of you know of the story of Jacob and Esau, how that their father Isaac uh, uh, fathered them, and they were twins, and they came out, and one was holding the heel of the other. The firstborn was Esau. The secondborn was Jacob. And uh, you know the story how that Esau was famished and hungry and, and he didn't care anything about his birthright. His birthright gave him uh, the double portion of a firstborn son and also the responsibility of, of a religious a leadership in the home and he completely didn't care anything about it. He sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. He didn't care anything about God, didn't care anything about the blessing of God. 
and and he's this is that his descendants are fr- these descendants uh, from Esau are the people that populated this area called Edom. And Edom was always the enemy of Israel. When the children of Israel made their way back from Egypt's bondage into Canaan land, it was Edom that attacked. Edom made war, would not let them drink water from their lands and even attack them on their way back to the promised land. The people of Edom fought against King Saul, against King David, against King Solomon, against King Jehoshaphat. They rebelled against Joram. The Edomites were the perennial thorn in the side of the people of God. They were always in opposition, always in conflict with God's people. So much so that later rabbinical scholars would indicate that Rome, the oppressor of the Jewish people in the New Testament, they would equate and call the Romans the Edomites. They would equate them and make them as though they were uh, these people of Edom. So the character of those enemies against God's people were seen as as the Edomites, a determined enemy. You know, today Edom is alive and well, using insidious ways to undermine the commission of the church to sullen and destroy its testimony and to outright oppose its growth. The world at large has, down through the centuries, been blessed and benefited uh, through the presence of the Christian religion is now attempting to devour and destroy any sense of its semblance of its presence. The flames of persecution and torture rage high all over the world towards those who follow the Nazarene. And the gospel is opposed opposed from the halls of Congress all the way down to the elementary classrooms of our community. Needless to say, our hour is as discouraging and as dark as the hour in which this prophet of God penned these words. That's what I want to make clear. This was a dark hour. It can be paralleled to our very own. There is a devil, there is a Satan, there is an opposition to the force, to the church of Jesus Christ. There is an opposition to the gospel in this world. And, and we are we're being faced with it all the time. We have no difference. There's a parallel between Israel here and where we are as a church. I'm not saying the church is Israel. Don't get my theology wrong. I'm not saying that we are Israel, but I am making a comparison. When Isaiah looks across this valley and he sees this person coming toward him, these were dark times. These were desperate times. Not only a desperate hour, but the second description I want to show you is a dazzling horizon. And that takes me back to 63. Who Remember when he, he looks across the valley and he asks this question, who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra he who is splendid in his apparel. Notice that word splendid. It means colorful or even as so much as dazzling garments. He has these colored garments as he walks toward him. Isaiah searches for the signs of an encroaching enemy. And he all of a sudden sees a, fig- a figure on the horizon. And he asks, who is this? Uh, notice he comes with crimsoned garments. In verse 2 we find out why. In the man's response to the question, he said, uh, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his 
who treads the winepress. In verse 3 he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. So, so get what he's seeing here. Isaiah sees a figure coming towards him in dazzling garments or colorful garments or I could see that because he can make out the spots and the reddish hue on the garments, I'm assuming that this garment is lighter color, maybe even white. And as this man approaches, he can see spots all around the bottom. And he makes the claim, he says, this garment looks like it's come through the wine press. Uh, he, it says that he, he they uses the phrase treads in the wine press. This speaks of a garment that has been stained from a practice in the Middle Eastern culture. In Middle Eastern culture, vineyards would dig these three or four foot deep pits and they would line it with wood and on the bottom wood. and It would be angled to such a degree that down on this end they would put a spigot on the inside letting whatever's on the inside to the outside. Inside this large vat they would take the grapes of the harvest and they would pile all those grapes inside inside that round uh, of vat there. And then the servants, hopefully they wash their feet. The servants, <laughs> don't mess with feet. All right, so they wash their feet, and then they get inside the vat. How many of you seen that I Love Lucy episode, you know, where she's, where she's inside there and she's stepping on? That's the picture here. Isaiah says he sees someone coming to them that looks like they have... Been inside that vat, of course you know if you step on those grates, they're going to squirt and spew, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get that, that juice off the grapes down here on this end to make wine. And so this person, as they step, obviously what are they going to get on their garments? They're going to get that, well, not that, don't get ahead of me here. Uh, they're, they're going to get the, 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 the juice, the grape juice. It's going to look like reddish splotches all over the bottom. That's what he's seeing. And he, he says what looks like it's, looks like it's, uh, it's wine juice or, or grape juice on, on there. But this guy's not coming. This guy's not coming from a vineyard. He's coming from Edom. The sworn enemy of Israel. This man's coming from a battlefield. And that garment's not stained with grape juice. It's stained in blood. In anger and fury, he goes on and says in verse number, verse number three, I trod them in my, in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. This is not grapes. This is the blood of enemies. A very, rather gory scene here. So evidently, this man coming from Edom is coming from a battle, and that battle has been won. He is coming back a victor. So now, who is this victor? Who is this person? Who is, who is this that Isaiah has seen? I believe the, the identity of this person has been shrouded in mystery all through the Old Testament. He was promised to come by the seed of the woman in Hebrews 3.15. He appeared to Abraham on the plains of Mamre. He wrestled with Jacob until the morning's light. He appeared to Moses in a burning bush that wouldn't burn. He came to Joshua as the captain of the Lord's host. He made himself known to Gideon and to David and to young King Solomon. He was seen by Nebuchadnezzar as he looked upon the three Hebrew children walking in the fire. 
prophetically. He is depicted in the Old Testament. The question though persists, who is this one? Who is the one the psalmist said, his hands and feet are pierced? Who is the one that is the suffering servant of Isaiah to bear the sin of many? Who is numbered with the transgressors who by whose stripes we are healed? Who is this one born of a virgin in Bethlehem? Who is this one that is the promised son to come out of Egypt? When we come to the New Testament, with the arrival of the carpenter's son from Nazareth, there's still a question as to the identity of this man. The scribes and Pharisees questioned his identity when he had the audacity to look upon a sick man and say, Son, your sins are forgiven. And when he did, he gave the same words to the woman who watered his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, he, the hairs of her head, they asked again, Who is this who even forgives sins? sins. When this man told them of the death of the Son of Man should die, they asked that question again, who is the Son of Man? And when he rode into Jerusalem on the eve of Passover on a lowly donkey while ecstatic followers laid their robes in front of the donkey and waved palm, grammets, uh, uh, waved palm branches saying, uh, Hosanna in the name of the Lord. The question rang out from the eldership then was, who is this man? Who is this man? This Nazarene was crucified on a cross in shame and ignominy. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And if the story had ended right there, this man's name, if we knew it at all, would just be a footnote in the history books. But on the third day, this carpenter turned prophet bodily, physically, historically, verifiably, unexpectedly, astoundingly, rose from the grave and changed the world. Who is he? Who is this man? Oh, this man is so much to so many. To the artist, he's the one altogether lovely. To the baker, he's the living bread. To the banker, he's the living, uh, the hidden treasure. To the carpenter, he's the door. To the doctor, he's the great physician. To the educator, he is the great teacher. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. To the geologist, he is the rock of ages. To the horticulturist, he's the true vine. To the jeweler, he's the pearl of great price. To the, uh, to the lawyer, he's the counselor, the lawgiver, the advocate. To the philanthropist, he's the unspeakable gift. To the preacher, he's the word of God. To the statesman, he's the desire of all nations. To the theologian, he's the author and finisher of our faith. To the sinner, he's a savior. To the Christian, he is the son of the living God, the savior, the redeemer, and the Lord. Who is in Isaiah's vision? Who did Isaiah see walking from Edom? Walking from the, from the battlefield with the enemies of God's people. I believe Revelation 19 tells us exactly who this man is. Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says, And when I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no man knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were Following him on white horses, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nation down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Almighty God. His robe and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords, the identity of our mystery man in Isaiah 63 is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, died, buried, and rose again on the third day. It is the Son of God. He is the one who speaks righteousness. What did Jesus say? I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. He said, I speak in righteousness in Isaiah 63. He said, who is the one who is mighty to save? Who is the one that came seeking to save the lost? It is none other than Jesus Christ. I submitted to you when Isaiah looked across this field, he saw none other than Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter number 19, Isaiah questions this person coming in victory from Edom. The Lord Jesus tells him that he has trampled, notice this, in verse number 3 in Isaiah 63, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. His victory came by his own hand. He defeated all the hordes of Edom, all the enemies of God, by his own hand. Alone in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, not my will, but thine. Alone when he was arrested for his disciples, fled from him. Alone on the cross, among the thorns and the nails and the gall and the spear, he bore my sin. Alone in the grave, he lay pale in death that was mine. That grave was to be mine. Alone that first day of the week, He has stood victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Alone, right now, He is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. Alone, He is coming to carry away His church. On that great day of the Lord, when He comes with many crowns on His head, and at His side are an uncountable host of saints on white horses, He won't need a single one of us to ever draw a sword. I imagine that we're going to be, I I mean, armed to the hilt when we come back with Jesus on white horses, but we'll never get the thrill of unsheathing that sword because when He enters the atmosphere by one word from His mouth, He will lay to waste the enemies of God until the blood runs to the horse's bridle. Jesus lands on this earth, He won't even be out of breath. Amen. (laughs) He's the victor. He is the one uh, that is the victor. He is the one alone that is our victor. You see, when Isaiah looked across that field, in his day of darkness and discouragement, he saw the ultimate victory. I'm of a mind that Isaiah 63 casts our eyes to Revelation 19 and the ultimate conquering by Jesus Christ. Now what does that do for us? What did it do for Isaiah? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter number 64. So we went to 62. We saw the environment that he was in. 63, we see the appearance of this stranger. Now look at 64 with me. Verse number 1. Here is Isaiah. His heart is no longer speaking to the people. Remember 62, he was talking to the people. But in 64, he's talking to the heavens. Look at what he said. 
Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and to that, and to that the nations might tremble at your presence. What does this vision do to the prophet? It gets his eyes off of the people, off of the horizon, and gets them lifted up to him. Isn't that what we need? We need some 2020 vision toward heaven. We need some 2020 vision off of Washington, off of the networks, off of the news feeds, and get our vision into heaven. Because I submit unto you that if we do that, our, our instinctive action is what Isaiah did. He began to pray. Oh, that thou would rim the heavens. That's a prayer. That he's asking. Oh, that you would rim the heavens and come down. That you would make your name known to the nations. That the people would tremble in your presence. Isn't that what we want God to do to come? Even so, John closed the book of Revelation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Isn't that what we want? God, what did, what did the Lord teach us to pray? Uh, uh, that His kingdom would come to this earth. We beckon, we pray for that day. And church, I, I know this theme in its fullness is about hope, but it's, and its application is about prayer. Church, we need to be praying. And I charge myself as well. We need to be a people seeking God, not only for our nation, and not only for our community and for our church, but for our families, our marriages, and ourselves. Because we can see this image of the ultimate... I know there's a lot of twists and turns, and have you seen all the jokes about 2021? You know, uh, uh, 20, 2020 just got a mask, and now he's coming in as 2021. All kinds of jokes about how bad 2021 is. Who knows what the next turn's going to be? Who knows what the next craziness is going to be cooked up and happen? I want you to know this, no matter what twists and turns we come to, Revelation 19, 11 through 16 is unchanged. He's coming. He's coming. Ultimate victory is found for all those that put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What if they outlaw Christianity in 2021? What if they imprison and persecute Christians? It's coming. Regardless, it's been, it's been, on, the, it's been on the boil for years and years. It's coming. We can't deny that in the book of Revelation. Persecution's coming. It's coming for the saints of God. It's coming for this place. Keep this in mind. Ultimate victory. For you and me personally, Already been one at Calvary. Amen. Where he did it by himself. He, he bore our sin on the cross. My victory signed, sealed, and delivered. But his victory over the nations, it's coming. It's coming. He may be slandered. He may be set aside. He may be of naught in this day. But one day he's coming and coming in victory. If you have lost hope, see the vision of Isaiah. Fix your gaze on Jesus. Turn your eyes to Him. Turn away from the reports, away from the protests, away from the murders, away from perverseness, away from wickedness of this present evil world and turn to Him. And see a vision of hope. He alone 
has the power to save. He alone has the power to revive and renew and restore. He alone is hope in Jesus. Look to Him. Look to Jesus and call upon Him. Let's all stand to our feet. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Gospel was in that message. The Gospel. He died. This, this man who was born in, in ignominy, who no one knew was the Son of God, He died for you on the cross. He bare your sin on the cross. And if you will repent and believe the Gospel, if you will turn in faith to Jesus, He will forgive your sin and give unto you the gift of eternal life. I want you to come to Him. But if you are here today, listen, church, barring the news, we can look at what we've been through as a church, or may I say for the most part you have been through as a church, and we can become discouraged. They're not, they're not as many people as there were now as there were last year. There are friends and loved ones and people we knew that have exited this place. I want you to know, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Victory's guaranteed. Victory will happen. It'll take place. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you'd like to respond, maybe you'd like to find a place at an altar or at your seat. If you want someone to come pray with you, uh, we will gladly do that. If you need someone to pray with you particularly, you come down front or there at your seat or even after the service, you can have us pray with you. But let's seek God, church. Let's ask God to do great things. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Thank you for the encouragement we gain from it. Father, I pray that you would seek deep in our hearts this hope. Not a maybe so, not a might be so, but this rock solid assurance that victory's already been won. Your victory over death, hell, and the grave seals the victory to come at the end of days when you come to claim your kingdom on this earth and to reign and rule from the, de the seat of your father David in Jerusalem. It's a guarantee, Father. Remind us that. And let us not lose hope, but let us call on you to rend the heavens and come down. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.